Hi, welcome to the Your Adrenal Fix podcast, where we help exhausted and burnt out adults learn the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their health back quickly. My name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I've suffered with my own adrenal fatigue problem, and now I've made it my mission to tell the truth about adrenal fatigue so that we can get to the root cause of your problem and really teach you how to put the puzzle pieces together so that you could tap into your hidden energy reserves and have all day energy. So this podcast is for anyone who's struggling for years or feeling overwhelmed and burnt out or you're just feeling stuck you're going to get cutting edge information from all our different guests in different respected health fields to give you those important tidbits of information so that you can actually act on them and improve your health join us for our podcast i know you will enjoy it Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Your Adrenal Fix, where we teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so that we can get your health back quickly. And part four, really, with a mentor, a friend, uh, a colleague, and someone that I I really am proud to say I know, Morley Robbins. Uh, He's the creator, if you don't know by now, of the Root Cause Protocol and Magnesium Advocacy Group. And Morley is just always digging down deeper into the rabbit holes. And I got a text from him the other day telling me that we're not only overdue for a chat, but he wants to tell me all about hepcidin and how it's causing utter chaos (laughs) in the recycling system of the cells. And I was too good to turn down. So here we are today, Morley. Um, Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, delighted to be here. And and I think the, the, the triad of what creates metabolic confusion would be iron, uric acid, and and um, hepcidin. I can't think of three factors that that have more uh, impact on messing up our um, mother nature driven physiology that just seems to be disappearing by the minute. But um, again, we, we've talked at length about the copper iron dynamic, and just before we went live here, we, we were chatting a little bit about uric acid, which we can come back to. I, I think that uric acid is a stealth metabolite that's playing in the background of all chronic disease, 100% of it. And there's all sorts of confusion about it being an antioxidant, pro-oxidant. Is it, is it, in, uh, is it a result of our diet? Is it a result of our lifestyle? And we can have some really interesting discussion about that. But the thing about hepcidin is, again, it's it's billed as the iron hormone. I'm not I'm not convinced that. Well, I, I think it, it, what's important to realize is that it's a negative regulator, as opposed to a positive regulator. Negative regulator would well. Let's let's flip it around. Positive regulator would be like your mother in the home regulating the functions of activity, making sure that kids are getting their homework done, that you know, all the all the daily chores are getting done, people are getting fed, what have you. That's positive regulation. Negative regulation would be relying on the police to control the, the chaos in the home. That's a negative regulator. And that's pretty much the way it works in our tissue, is that. Copper is the positive regulator of iron. 
that's very well established. Go, going back to 1928 with Hart Steinbach with Ellen LVM, you know, all the way to 2021 with Kim and Gonzalez saying, yeah, if copper's missing, iron's gonna get out of control, uh, especially in the liver. And what appears to be the, the case is that when copper is deficient, the body has a backup plan. And it's called this negative regulator, hepcidin. And what, what causes so many of the problems for people is when, when they get a blood test, it, it can be misinterpreted. The, the blood, the iron levels in the blood can look low and the practitioner interprets that as being, well, that means you have low iron in, in the tissue. Well, low iron in the blood and in the tissue are completely different media. And, and that's the, the really pioneering work of Bruce Ames back in 2004, who was able to prove that there's 10 times more iron in the tissue than is in the blood. But if it looks low in the blood, a lot of practitioners will make a knee-jerk decision to encourage supplementation or even um, encourage infusions, which are, I think, I think they're basically poison to the body. We can talk more about that. But the very presence of iron supplementation triggers hepcidin. And what hepcidin does is it shuts down the iron recycling program and its target is the ferroportant pathway, ferroportant being the iron doorway, ferroportant. And what it does is it causes an internalization of that pathway and its degradation. So the, the, the cell, especially the macrophage, loses the natural ability to allow for iron egress so that recycling of the iron can continue because what's playing in the background of everyone's body is the need to turn over two and a half million red blood cells every second. That's a big deal. Two and a half million, we've been talking now for about 15 minutes and times 60, right? Times two and a half million. So we've been working pretty hard to replace our blood. And in the course of 24 hours, it's, it's a ridiculous number, it's several billion. Uh, red blood cells. But what's fascinating about that is it only takes 25 milligrams of iron to support the replacement of 24 hours of red blood cells. It's absolutely amazing. 25 milligrams is nothing. And even more amazing is that 24 of those 25 milligrams of iron come from the recycling system that's dependent upon the iron circulation, the iron recycling, that's dependent upon ferroportant doorway being open. And to keep it open, you need to have the ferrooxidase enzyme function that's provided by ceruloplasmin, but in this case, it would be Hephaestin, uh, named after Hephaestus in the, in the mythology of the forge, the iron forge. But, but the point is, when that ferrooxidase is not present, hepcidin comes in and basically shuts down the, the pathway. And 
the way I've characterized it, it, it works with guys. It doesn't necessarily work with women, but guys who who know football know what a linebacker's job is: shut down the play. You know, no one did it better than Dick Butkus in the Chicago Bears. Well, that's a negative regulator. He's shutting down the play, as opposed to the positive regulator would be a quarterback. And no better quarterback than Tom Brady, whether you whether you like him or not, he's considered the best quarterback of all time. But he's the positive regulator. So you, so basically, what you've got in the body is a positive regulator and a negative regulator. And according to the research of of Rao, R A O and Reddy, from I think it was 1996, um, it was their assertion that copper deficiency created the creation of hepcidin. It's, it's, a, it's a response to copper status in the body. And so um, a lot of confusion about it, but what makes it even worse is that there are stimulants and suppressors in our diet that will influence hepcidin's activity. A, a great suppressor is vitamin D. And so, again, as if there wasn't enough confusion about vitamin D, now we find out that it, it suppresses the level of hepcidin. Well, does that sound like a good idea? If the body thinks it needs hepcidin and you're suppressing it, wow, that's, that's quite, a, quite a development. And so, depending upon the, the, um, the, the food component, you know, sugar and fructose, have a completely different effect on hepcidin. And so it's just, we are in this tennis match between what's stimulating it, what's suppressing it. And basically what, what I decided in my um, webinar, I took the stance that, wait a minute, we're falling, we're falling into the trap of good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. And what, what stops the rise of cholesterol is copper. Are we stimulating hepcidin? Are we suppressing it? Why don't we just avoid its need and just focus on copper? And I think it just becomes a another example of the genius of the body to use this um, underappreciated mineral. It's the Achilles heel of our physiology and allow it to regulate the recycling of iron. And then we don't have to worry about hepcidin. And and it's really it's being billed now by the by the um, hematologists uh, as a um, iron hormone regulating iron, and I'm just like that's a that's a real stretch. I just I don't buy it as a classification because of the primal role that bioavailable copper plays in regulating iron in our body. <clears throat> So lots of notes here, lots of notes here, because I, I, I'm glad and, and excited to unpack everything that you, you said there. And uh, I, I mean, I'm thinking about it even from my standpoint. Okay, there's some confusions that I have, but then if I'm oh, thinking about yeah. it from the standpoint of a person that doesn't know all the X, Y's and Z's, if we can break that down to them a little bit more succinctly. So Obviously, we've talked about the, the challenge that at the end of the day, if you're exhausted and you're tired and you're burnt out, 
you have some assumed guilty until proven otherwise, which would be guilty, problems with the way your body hot potatoes the regulation of iron and how it binds to oxygen and how it makes energy. And I always say, if you're not using oxygen for you, you're using it against you. Instead (laughs) of getting an income, you're getting an expense, right? We've talked about that in the past. And and you've also expressed that 95% or more of your um, of your hemoglobin or your iron is recycled, whereas one milligram ideally or up to 5% of right. your iron stores are from your, your food intake. And the body is demanded to recycle uh, that iron. And there's positive and negative, negative regulators to that. Um, right. Morley, just as an aside, one of the ways that I initially found you was through doing a lot of genomic test interpretations. And I'll agree that what we're talking about today takes precedence over genetics. However, I do find that if there are weakened ability in certain areas, that these people are more susceptible to these challenges. I I do see a lot of polymorphisms in the um, TMPRSS556, which is basically, it plays a critical role in hepcidin. So maybe back us up a bit one one more time, if you will, just more so for me and the listeners get a benefit because I'm not clear on it, where um, hepcidin is the linebacker and it is the negative regulator. So if there's not enough iron or sorry, not enough copper to help drive that recycling ability of all these um, enzymes that help export and, and move uh, iron out of tissues, then it will shut down the play. But if it can't shut down the play, what what happens? Or maybe kind of go from there. Right. So who's the battery pack on TMPRSS6 or whatever, you know? Right. Um, What is it? Marta, it says here, Marta paste two. Is that that a matri paste or M? Matri paste two. Yeah, matri paste two, right. It's I don't know. Now we're getting a little more sophisticated than than I know. Yeah. Sorry, but it's, yeah. but it's but it's copper dependent, right? Okay. So, so right. again, all of these um, polymorphisms, I would argue, are reflections of copper deficiency. And if we go back to our our first discussion before we started this um, dialogue, I was sharing with you that. There's iron building up in nucleus, in the nucleus, that's supposed to be regulated by another copper-dependent uh, enzyme called um, the, the ferritin heavy chain requires ferrooxidase. Again, we're, we're we're operating with a complete understanding of how copper regulates iron, and so I I hear you loud and clear about the the polymorphism, but but I would argue that the real the real origin of the problem. I'm wondering if if that mechanism isn't being triggered because there isn't adequate copper to open up the ferroport and doorway. That that would be, to me, there's like a hierarchy. And if and as you're talking about income and, and expense, if the expense starts going up inside the cell, well then you're going to trip that maltrip. We're both struggling with the word, but the uh, TMPRSS. Um, mechanism 
I think that gets triggered by oxidative stress. Right. And so well, I'm a big, I'm, I am sorry to interrupt. I am a big believer of when I do look at these genomics, obviously I'm more in concerned about their subjective, their life, their stress, their exposures, right. all of the demands of life. However, I find it fascinating that there are certain, let's call it checkpoints or um, checks and balances where you see more of these polymorphisms to to compensate for for that problem over here. What I'm are, what I'm extrapolating is the fact that this person's going to be harder hit in this area along the recycling chain, if you will, or they're going to need more support. I mean, it's still RCP driven, but at oh, the yeah, same yeah. time, I get a little more specific as to, hey, this is where the weak links in the chain are breaking, so to speak. But um, yeah. And again, um, if if in fact, Rao and Reddy are right about hepcidin being triggered by copper deficiency, well, that means it's being triggered by oxidative stress, right? And so then I, I would be wondering what's happening with uric acid in these bodies. Is it building in, at some level? It may not be classified as hyperuricemia, but maybe it's going up just enough to trigger another threshold of reaction that's causing hepcidin to fire off. And again, hep hepcidin is... To me, it's a fail-safe mechanism. It's it's not a let's keep the body in in natural regulation. It's we have a we have a problem. We've got building expenses. There's exhaust, and we got to shut this thing down. And it's a very powerful uh, mechanism. And so you've, I I think the confusion is from the forces in our diet that can flip hepcide in one way or the other. And that and in that webinar I did a couple weeks ago, there's a very specific slide where, I, where it's very clearly indicating who's increasing hepcidin, who's decreasing or, or silencing hepcidin. And I think, it, I think it's important for people to know that there are uh, components of our diet that, are, that can be very powerfully influential in the activity level of hepcidin that may be involved in these polymorphisms as well. Gotcha. Okay. So just the, the, and just to, so that I'm completely clear on it, if, if hepcidin is working a, a, effectively, then, and it's needed because we don't have the ability to recycle the iron uh, or, or recycle and make heme and, and, and make the metabolic uh, energy production that we need to, what happens as a consequence? The iron gets stuck in tissues, uh, continued ox hydroxyl radicals, like what's, what's going on there when it's not being, uh, when it's not shutting down effectively? Well, you're going you're gonna to lose an energy. As iron builds in the tissue, especially in the mitochondria, you're going to have a, a massive loss of energy. When that takes place, then you now you've affected the whole process of recycling uh, calcium and recycling the iron and recycling a number of metabolites. It's going to affect protein metabolism because the nitrogen is not going to be recycled properly um, because of the change in urea recycling. But then we've got the added impact of iron interacting with the oxygen. Oxidative stress is going to go up. Well, then you've got a greater chance for 
lipid peroxidation, and then a greater chance for um, DNA defects and other breakdowns in the, um, the cell. And then you, you stand the chance of either apoptosis or ferroptosis, which is, <coughs> those are you know, clean uh, deaths, but those still, it's the death of the cell because of what's taking place inside the, uh, the, the tissue or inside the, the cellular structure. So the thing is, as soon as you've got this dysregulation of, of iron, it begins to have a compound effect with its interaction with not just the oxygen, but the oxidants effect on the, the DNA, the lipids, and the proteins. Uh, right, right. Right. So, so as far as uh, I'm just thinking of how to put this all together. So you mentioned about the metabolic confusion and talking about the hepcidin, the iron and the uric acid. And now we sort of brought in vitamin D in, in that component too. Um, I, I guess, where do you want to go from here, Morley? What's the natural next uh, um, thing to talk about? Well, and I would just add that I'm looking into, you know, can we easily measure hepcidin and uric acid as components? I know we can. Is it is it uh, cost prohibitive? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be having some discussions with the, the lab about that. But I think it's what is important is to raise people's awareness about this dynamic that it's contributing to the confusion about iron. That maybe, again, when iron starts to get locked up in the tissue, that's anemia of chronic inflammation. That is not anemia of iron deficiency. Yeah, it's, it's low in the blood. I get that. But there's no easy way to measure iron in the tissue <laughs> other than needle biopsy or Tesla two MRIs, both of which are doable, but but they're not convenient. They're not, and they're not exactly uh, uh, cheap either. But but the thing is, I think there needs to be greater awareness about the recycling program, the fact that it can be affected by hepcidin, the fact that hepcidin is influenced by copper status, and that this dynamic of slowing down the recycling system causes what's called chronic inflammation. What's the biggest stimulant for chronic inflammation? Uric acid. If you, if you, wanna, if you wanna introduce inflammation into the tissue, expose it to uric acid. It, it, it's, it's an absolute lock. And what's uric acid tied to now? All forms of metabolic syndrome all the heart disease, the diabetes, um, the um, neurodegeneration. Cancer is now being classified as a, an extension of uric acid. So I think it's important for people to realize that inflammation is not our friend and it's leading to dysregulation of iron that is showing up as low iron in the blood and it's leading to incorrect uh, recommendations to either supplement or infuse iron, which I'm, I'm just vehemently opposed to. It, it doesn't make sense. So I, I think in light of that, it's good to raise the awareness. Maybe we just uh, make a pivot and, and go down that bunny trail of, well, if vitamin D is having that impact on hepcidin, maybe we should revisit this vitamin D thing again. And, and now we've got added um, impetus to at least question 
the narrative about vitamin D. I, I was reading an interesting article uh, earlier this week that was talking about the recognized antagonism between vitamin A and vitamin D. And it was relating to, um, I'm gonna get the, it was relating to CD 36, I believe, and another CD, and I'm, I'm blanking on the number, I apologize for that. But, but the point was it was raising is that there's natural antagonism between those two metabolites. So that's been my position all along, is that I'm not opposed to vitamin D. I know it's important. It's relative to everything else. And what I'm, what I'm vehemently opposed to is this idea that everyone's vitamin D deficient because people don't know how vitamin D is made. And people don't seem to understand the difference between storage D and active D. So I came up with an analogy recently. Storage D is a parked car. It's a storage metabolite. It's not supposed to be in our blood. It, it's supposed to be in the, in the liver for heaven's sakes. And so what is active D? Well, that's a car on the Autobahn. And what do you, when you're on the Autobahn, you gotta have a driver, that's VDR. And you gotta have a navigator and that's RXR. And what's important for people to know is that there's all sorts of accolades being assigned to vitamin D. But it's not being assigned to the parking, parked cars, it's being assigned to the cars that are on the Autobahn. They're active, they've got VDR, and they've got RXR. Well, how do you get VDR? You better have extra magnesium. And how do you get RXR? You better have retinol. And, and people don't realize that it's a triad that stimulates our immune system. It is not storage D, the parked car, it's the active D on the Autobahn and what, what people are failing to recognize is that active D is static. There's very little variation of levels of active D in our body. Storage D fluctuates with the season. We're entering the winter season where there's not as much light, except for you smart people down in Florida, but uh, and when there's less light, what happens? Storage D goes down. Why? Because the body says, we don't wanna block that light. During the summer, there's more sunlight, lots more sunlight. And what, what happens is storage D goes up. Why? Because it's blocking the sunlight. Storage D, the parked car, is sunglasses. And people can't seem to understand the role that storage D has, which is very different than the role of active D. And what's happened, my theory is that they've, they've transposed the accolades that should be assigned to active D that is never measured by practitioners. They've transposed it to the storage D. And the storage D is blocking the uptake of vitamin A. And, and we can have a very rousing conversation 
um, about why retinol is important. And, and what I do, as you, as you well know, by virtue of our conversations, I, I put everything into an energy type of energy a paradigm. Is this metabolite increasing energy in our body? Guess what the role of vitamin D is relative to energy production? There isn't one. There is no function that vitamin D plays to increase energy. Vitamin A, completely different. Vitamin A, according to Hammerling, 2016, there is something, there's a mechanism, there's a four-part mechanism that resides between complex three and complex four of the mitochondria. And it's called the signalosome. And the signalosome is where electrons move from complex three to complex four. And the electrons ride the carbon tail of retinol to get from three to four. And if retinol is not present, what happens? It's called the Warburg effect. And what is the Warburg effect? It's where the body stops using oxygen to metabolize fuel and goes anaerobic and ferments fuel. Fermentation, as you well know, is producing two units of energy. When in fact, when you oxidize uh, sugars, you're gonna get 34 ATP. When you oxidize fats, you're gonna get 140. We're designed to burn fat. That's really the preferred fuel. And if retinol is not in our diet and it's not in our mitochondria, we're not gonna move the electrons as efficiently. When did they, when did they first identify retinol deficiency as the cause of cancer? Montrose T. Burroughs, 1925. And he had four articles in 1926. And other scientists have made that assertion. And the, what's the cutting edge treatment for cancer today? Iron chelation therapy coupled with retinol therapy. Hmm, interesting. Let's get rid of that Warburg effect. What else does vitamin A do? It's really critical for um, the microbiome, for the proper balance of good guys and bad guys. People don't realize that retinol has a completely suppressive effect on E. coli. And so, so my point is, we, we could go on for an hour talking about all the things that retinol does, but I think it's important for people to realize that in, increased focus and intake of vitamin D suppresses the uptake of vitamin A. And we, and we live in a um, kind of this mono-focused world that I can only think about one thing at a time. So people worry about their health and they think they need more vitamin D. They're not thinking about the dynamic interplay between the metabolites. They're not thinking about the reason why the vitamin D may be low, which is debatable because the, the range, the reference range of 30 to 100 is the um, creation of one person, Michael Hollick up at Boston University. But, but the point is in order to make the, the storage D, the parked car, you gotta have magnesium 
working with an enzyme found in the liver. And if magnesium isn't present at, at optimal levels, that enzyme is not going to function properly. Well, what would cause magnesium to not be present enough in the liver? It's the buildup of iron. It's a known fact that, that iron will cause magnesium loss in the liver. Well, what causes iron to build up in, in the, uh, the liver? Well, it's back to Hart, Steenbach, Waddell, and Elvium, 1928. Deny an animal copper and iron will rise in its liver. It will also rise in its spleen. They just, they zeroed in on, on the liver. It turns out that the spleen is probably a bigger storage depot for iron than even the liver is. But, it, but it's, all of this is a far cry from what people think, well, vitamin, I, I've got to get vitamin D to build up my immune system. And what does the literature say? It suppresses the immune system. It doesn't stimulate it. And what does vitamin A do? It downregulates the immune system. Suppressing the immune system is not a good thing. And I'm afraid what we're going to find um, downstream, we're beginning to see evidence of it now, but I think it's going to get worse over the next couple of years. I think we're going to, we're going to witness as a result of the overriding focus on vitamin D, we are going to, and the, and the impact that has on retinol in the body, I think we're going to witness a alarming rise in cancer around the planet. And we're beginning to see evidence of it. I think it's going to get a lot worse over the next two to three years. And again, the, the part that everyone should question is when conventional doctors and alternative doctors are both recommending the same thing, people should stop and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense to me. And they didn't do that. And so there's a lot of, of research out there that clearly correlates vitamin D status to some health, health outcome. Well, you know as well as I do that, that correlation is not causation. Do flies cause garbage? No. Do firemen cause fires? No. But they certainly seem to be there when there's garbage and fire. And it's, it's just the confusion about how these variables show up at the same time, but they're not causal. And, and I just, I think that my whole stance on vitamin D goes back to uh, 2010 when I met um, a very important figure, um, Dr. Kumaro, um, Fred Kumaro, famous lipid biologist at um, University of Illinois, downstate Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. He was 98 years old when I met him. Just, just a luminary. And we're having lunch in his home and he's telling me about this famous speech that he gave at a conference, international conference in the 80s, just as vitamin D was becoming popular. And he told people, based on a decade of research with pigs, he told people, ladies and gentlemen, you do not supplement with vitamin D. It's not advised. And you can imagine the pushback that took place. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Kumro, what happened as a result of that um, speech? 
again, you got to picture this guy. He was bigger than I am. He's like 6'2", very, very vital. Twinkle in his eye. He leans forward and he says, well, Morley, I'm the only one left standing. All the others are dead. So he was a, he, and he lived to be 102, died uh, near his 102nd birthday, or right after his 102nd birthday. But the, the thing is, this is a very disruptive message in an era where people are freaked out about this condition that everyone's worrying about. And I haven't backed down one, one iota. I think that, that vitamin D is, the D stands for deception. The D stands for disinformation. The D stands for dysfunction inside the body. The D stands for, for uh, dysregulation of retinal metabolism. And it's just, um, it's not a popular stance. People find it almost offensive, but I've read a few articles and there's compelling evidence that there's way more to the story than what Dr. Hollick is trying to convince the world. And, and I wasn't at all convinced by what emerged with, with COVID. And I think a large part, the, um, the dynamic with COVID and, and vitamin D is what it did to hepcidin. And somehow that mechanism of shutting down hepcidin, I, I think prevented the iron release that, that was meant to take place and again, it starts to get into some pretty esoteric uh, physiology that I think it's beyond both our pay grades. But I think that's the mechanism that makes the most sense to me. That, and, the, and the other side of it that I should, should point out, um, and I think I did share this in the uh, webinar, people need to know that the, there's uh, an identical structure between COVID spike protein and hepcidin. Well, that should, that should really unnerve a lot of people. And if that's the case, well, then it would make sense that, that vitamin D would shut that down. But what you need to understand is that hepcidin is a byproduct of copper deficiency. Well, there's a whole other way to solve that problem than to drown yourself in vitamin D, which is going to affect retinol, which is going to affect the bioavailability of your copper. So it's, it's just a completely different a paradigm of, of logic, a different uh, philosophy of how the body is run. And I think people, they, they just need to decide, do they believe that or not? And if they do, then adopt that philosophy. If they don't, move on and do what, do what both the conventional and the alternatives are telling you to do, which should make you very nervous. Yeah, there's a lot there, Marley. I, I think I... I... You know, when you get information overload, if you go to like, I don't do this, but if you went to the Cheesecake Factory and there's, you know, 25 different pages and there's 20 items on each page, I'm the type of person that as soon as I see one thing that I know that I want, I'll get it and I don't read through all the other stuff. And I think mm -hmm. I did that with vitamin A and vitamin D as soon as I understood the idea and concept that storage D blocks absorption of A or too much D blocks absorption of A that doesn't allow active D to get into the cell. I, I didn't need any more information. I was ready to order what I wanted to order and I didn't need to go through all the different pages, if you will. Does, does that make right. sense? It, well, it does make sense. And I think the problem that people have is they don't know how important and powerful 
retinol is in our immune system. They, they've been conditioned that well, the vitamin D runs the immune <laughs> system and it doesn't. And it's a, it is an interplay between the two. And there's a reason why our ancestors used cod liver oil and relied on cod liver oil to stay healthy. And there's a significant variation in the amount of retinol in cod liver oil to vitamin D. In some cases, it's 10 to 1. You know, the, the jigsaw brand, the Alaskan brand of cod liver oil, it's 20 to 1. There's 20 times more retinol than, than um, vitamin D in that product. It's like, and there's a reason why those Alaskan cod need that extra retinol. And it's just people are not, they, they have an incomplete understanding of the dynamic. And they're um, following a, one line of thought and they're not using their critical thinking skills to say, is there more to the story? And it, and it takes time and it is, it, it takes energy to work through this. And, and as you say, decide, is, is this, does this make sense to me? And if it does, then move on. And I think uh, people are overly swayed by the groundswell of opinion. Well, when was the last time the majority made sense? I mean, really? And, and so I think it's, um, George Bernard Shaw, who said, all, product, all progress in society is a function of people being unreasonable. And, and I'm unreasonable about this topic. And I think you are as well. And I appreciate your efforts to try to uh, enlighten your, your clients and your followers because our lives are at stake. Our, our health and well being is at stake. And I, and I think it's a tragedy that we're still arguing something that Dr. Kumaro tried to, to put to rest back in the 1980s. And here we are 40 years later, just as confused. And, and how long did it take us to solve the cholesterol confusion? It took 65 years. So maybe we have another 25 years of this insanity, fortunately. Yeah, you know, I, I still think about the, in your Cure Your Fatigue uh, book about Maybe you can uh, expand upon that where you had the, the, and again, I'll tell my patients, just like you said earlier, I don't have I, I, vitamin D is essential for the body when we're not talking about it in a storage form and making sure that right. your storage levels are super high. Um, that's, we're not talking about that. And in fact, if you want to get the active form of vitamin D into your cells, you need to decrease your storage form so that you increase your vitamin A to be able to get your active D. So we both want your D to be working more effectively. You're just right. yelling at the deaf person louder and I'm just putting, you know, a hearing aid on him kind of thing. That's the, that's the difference, right? <laughs> But what what yeah. is the 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 four year follow up study? Maybe you could tell us about that because that doesn't seem to get the recognition that the initial because it all sounds like it's a flaw in the study's design that is pointing to the fact. Okay, vitamin D good, therefore the causation of having storage D high must necessarily follow where it's a corollary in terms, but what was the study that you were mentioning about how they never reported the four-year follow-up and found that, um, I believe that it's not so much that 
it, it low vitamin D storage for unhealthy and healthy people. It's just that the the unhealthy people have high vit, uh, active D versus the unhealthy cohorts, and it wasn't really reported. So everything hung on the initial study without the follow up. Something like that. Does that does that ring a bell for you? Um, it's not as sharp as I want it to be, but I but I absolutely understand <laughs> the dynamic. And the thing is there is a narrative we we know there's a narrative in society now and we're all subject and pray to that narrative and and i think what we're trying to do is is help people gather more information about what else is in play what are what are other factors what are other data points that they need to be aware of like this study that you're referring to because um there are i've come across countless examples where information that should have been earth shattering, like the, the, the work of, of um, Warburg and Krebs in 1927, when they discovered that copper enzymes re respond to anemia. Well, that tells you that copper regulates iron. And that's a major study that maybe three people know about. And so it's, to me, there, there's been a narrative throughout the, uh, the decades to bias people to a, a certain way of thinking about focusing on pathogens, focus on the particle, don't focus on the field, don't focus on the physiology or the energetics of the body. Everything's about, oh, you've got this bug and we've got to kill the bug. Not telling you that when you kill that bug, you're going to kill the, the, the mitochondrial bugs that, are, that look just like the, the bugs are trying to kill. And so people are, I think people are more sensitive to it today, three years after you know, 2020. And, and so it's a different world now, but I think there's still a subset of society that is lost in the narrative. And I don't, I don't know what it's going to take to get people to um, do the gut check and say, I got to rethink this. I've got to go down a different path. I've got to challenge. I mean, was it Mark Twain who said, um, if you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to switch sides. And so it's like people, people like to be in numbers. They like to be in the crowd. It's more comfortable, but that doesn't mean it's right. And I think, I think this is this cataclysmic clinical issue around vitamin D. I think we're going to look back on it in 10 years and went, oh my gosh. I mean, I think you and I will be relieved, but I think the masses are going to be stunned by what they didn't understand. And it's, you know, again, I, I think there's there's enough evidence to satisfy us that that there are mistakes being made, but it's just tragic that that people can't seem to process the information in a timely enough fashion to make make a different decision. Right. Well, and and shifting gears a little bit here, where someone's listening to this and they might be getting some good pieces of information, and other pieces might be a little bit above their heads. Um, what you've done is you've created a really uh, usable handbook that I saw you have a new update for that really gives people okay. Well, what do I do? The same people that find strength in numbers and want shortcuts and just do this and the magic wand and you know everything's you know waved and and you come home from uh the ball and you don't turn into a pumpkin you know all that type of thing 
Um, but let's maybe talk about that because I think it's an important point in terms of maybe what's new on there, what you have things that you should be stopping and things that you should be starting all in the guise of getting your bioavailable copper working effectively for you so that you are moving your 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 iron, you're recycling your iron, you're making ATP, you're not oxidatively creating inflammation and breaking down DNA and proteins and so forth. So maybe what's new on that, Morley, or for the person that's never heard of that, what's what's old that's effective and what do you what is what's it trying to do? I guess that's the question. Yeah, the the protocol, the root cause protocol is just trying to simplify the process of getting well. And it's based on stops and starts and getting people to realize that these very popular uh, nutritional recommendations, ascorbic acid, vitamin D, zinc, iron, calcium, um, synthetic B vitamins, these are not your friends. And so we've, we've taken a stance that get those out of your routine, get rid of the, the processed food. You've got to move beyond that and get to real seasonal, locally grown wherever possible, organic food. It's not easy, it's not cheap. Uh, it, it isn't, um, it, it, it takes a real commitment to, to go down that path. But the focus of the starts is to begin to build the nutrients in the body to develop bioavailable copper. And I think the biggest change in, the, in this latest edition of the, um, handbook is to identify copper supplements. You know, one happens to be the one that I've, I've uh, put together called Recuperate, but there are others that are mentioned, but we wanted to make sure people knew that there are viable sources because we were silent about that in earlier editions. And, it, and in large part, um, the whole stance around copper changed post-2020. Because, it, because I think that copper has been under assault uh, ever since that mechanism started. And, and I think it's critical for people to realize that if they're still struggling with symptoms here in 2022, you're copper deficient and you need to really bulk up. You need to be doing the protocol. You need the, the other nutrients that are critically important for making sure that copper gets loaded into its key metabolic protein called ceruloplasmin. But there are scores of copper enzymes that need to be loaded. And those, that loading process requires retinoic acid from retinol in order to activate the enzymes to move the copper into, um, into those enzymes. And if you don't have retinol in your diet and you don't have retinol in your physiology, it will not. Those, those key uh, regulatory enzymes are not going to work. And those enzymes are critical for creating energy, clearing exhaust, catalyzing other enzymes, and combating enemies. All this focus on pathogens over the, over the decades for the last century has been having pushed copper aside because that's mother nature's anti-pathogenic. It's been used through, throughout history. You can, you can go back to the Smith papyrus 2500 BC, and they were talking about using copper to heal people. Well, they knew its medicinal purposes, but this has all been lost in the modern era 
in the, uh, since the First World War. So it's, it's just a different world. And we live in a uh, iron-centric world where the emphasis is on getting more iron and in a world where people have been trained to think of copper as being toxic. Can't tell you the number of practitioners I've talked to over the last five to seven years who are terrified of using copper because they think it's going to create all sorts of oxidative stress. Same, same thing with vitamin A as well, right? I mean, vitamin A is toxic, copper is toxic, vitamin D is not, iron is not, right? Right, right. And, and, that, and that, that axis of insanity is why people are so sick. Right. One of the last things, I mean, I'd love to talk to you again, but as far as just getting to that point here, one of the things that I think that the RCP and the training talk very well and, and put a lot of emphasis on is, okay, well, I'm doing the stops, I'm doing the starts. Why am I not necessarily feeling any better? And it's not a magic wand. What's your life like? What's your stressors like? What's your demand for energy and how are you respiring at the cellular level from right. uh, are you stuck in first gear or are you able to get out of first gear so maybe just talk a little bit about how you've incorporated that into your teachings as well because i think that's a point that's lost on a lot of people as well oh, yeah. when i'm when i'm chatting with a client who's been very faithful to the protocol trying to do all the stops and starts as you say uh, and they feel like they've plateaued or they're they're like moving sideways or something doesn't feel right. There's four roadblocks that we talk about. The first is, you know, what, what we know about the protocol is that it works, especially to mobilize iron. As soon as you start to introduce either copper or the nutrients that make copper bioavailable, you are going to activate that iron recycling program. And and what's important for people to realize is that when they start to do that, that means they've got to discharge that iron through blood donations. Very important to get that excess iron that's been held in storage because of hepcidin um, and get it out of the body because <coughs> there's nothing beneficial from excess stored iron. So iron <coughs> don I mean, donations are very, very important. Second factor is to look at their diet and say, is there a, are you really sensitive to your foods or your environment? It's a histamine issue and begin to identify where that sensitivity is and really encourage people to work with practitioners who are adept at um, clearing those sensitivities through NAET, um, very, very powerful mechanism. Third is, we all have emotional baggage. One of the biggest roadblocks we come up against is if you haven't released that emotional baggage, it will become fear <coughs> and the fears drive dysregulation in our body because it triggers hormones and those hormones are designed to accumulate iron. It's, it's, it's a fact. And so it's really key to make sure that people realize that they've got to take the time and the steps to release that baggage, release those fears, so they can unbridle the, the energy in the body that's needed for the healing. And then the fourth hurdle is parasites. What, what I'm finding over the last couple of years is the pervasive impact that parasites, there's very few doctors that take courses in parasitology. It's not, not mainstream uh, clinical education. 
And so because they don't know about parasites, they don't understand the role that parasites play to disrupt copper metabolism, to build accumulation of iron. And, and what happens is these parasites are particularly disruptive to our macrophages, the, 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 the Pac-Men that are trying to keep things in uh, balance. And a lot of people are worried about autoimmune disease. <coughs> well, what's autoimmune? Autoimmune is, um, without exception, you've got iron-laden macrophages. Some would go so far as to say hemosiderin-laden, which means there's so much iron in there, it's frightening, but hemosiderin-laden macrophages, parasites, and they haven't dealt with the emotions. There's a negative emotion behind every autoimmune condition. And so people need to realize that these parasites, these intracellular um, pathogens are very powerful. They've been on the planet since the beginning of time. And what's especially important is to recognize the work of uh, Pat Colby, world-renowned animal um, farmer down in Australia. And she's written multiple books on um, animal husbandry, but she makes a very strident point. Any animal that's copper deficient will have parasites. Any animal with parasites will have copper deficiency. Now the mistake that's routinely made by practitioners is thinking that parasites only hang out in the gut. Not true. Um, they're, they're all over our body, but especially in our liver and our spleen because of just the, the prevalence of iron in those uh, organs. And so people need to rethink if they do have parasites, it isn't just a simple gut cleanse. They probably need bioresonance or biomagnetism to really introduce the frequency to um, break down the parasites and allow the natural healing energy to, to, to flow. And so those are the four, four areas of focus that we really concentrate on. And when we have success around those four areas, invariably people make that shift and they get back into the, the momentum phase of, of getting well. Yeah, no, awesome stuff. I, I already know when we've texted, it's it's the answers are are born out of just common sense, mother nature things versus having to crack the atom and come up with, you know, as you like to say, six standard deviation solutions. It's 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 common sense solutions. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think there's a there's a simplicity and an elegance to the body. And I think people need to appreciate that Mother Nature is pretty sophisticated at, at designing how our immune system is supposed to work. And it really runs on energy and intelligence. And I would argue that copper is what brings both to the party. Uh, there's nothing intelligent about iron. It, it's, it is, it's a very important element. We can't live without it, but it is, um, it's a dumbwaiter. Basically, it's just carrying oxygen for the most part in the body. And, and it's, it's been assigned to all these really critical functions. But in every one of them, copper is hiding in the background. Every one of the functions, there's a, there's a critical need for bioavailable copper to make that iron responsible and do its job. And again, it's, it's in the literature, but it's not in the headlines. 
And so right. if you don't get past the headlines, you're not going to understand what's really going on. Well, I mean, I think if someone's listening to this and they've gotten this far, they're open to the idea that what That's they're true. being told is not necessarily so. Um, RCP123.com, that's the place where they yep. go to find, is that correct? Uh, RCP123.org. Or it's it's the rootcauseprotocol.com. Just, just to make it as confusing as we can. <laughs> who owns the rcp123.com <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know if that it even exists as a as a domain we might we might actually own it but by, by now i don't think anyone does but right. now you inspire me to look it up now yeah right well awesome morley i appreciate your time i'd love to be able to keep an open invitation if you have the time and inclination to meet again and I, I wish you future success i know that you've announced to your community that you're not necessarily getting out of the mix, but you're stepping back to, to do more of the research. So I wish you um, continued success and um, I guess fulfillment in, in the new role or the, the old new role that you're going back into. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. To me, it's I, I'm calling it a strabatical, strategic sabbatical and uh, really focusing on some critical issues that I think are really going to help secure the, the growth and development of the movement. And I'm really looking forward to that time in 2023 to do that. Well, excellent. I mean, I am looking forward to, as always, to being sort of on the sideline and seeing all the amazing things that you're doing and just wanted to thank you for, for your continued vigilance and, and everything that you do, Morley. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Well, our, our next conversation will probably be face-to-face -face in your office. So I can't, can't wait for that, so. Perfect. Awesome. We'll start to make those. We'll start to make those array. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. You take care. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of your Adrenal Fix podcast, where our goal is really to teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so that they can get their energy back quickly. And if you happen to be suffering with your own exhaustion and fatigue-based problems and you're not getting answers and you're frustrated and you're concerned and you really want to get back to the things that you're not able to do, then maybe it's time for you and I to book a discovery call. If that makes sense to you or what we talked about makes sense to you, then this is an opportunity for you and I to troubleshoot and figure out what's going on in your body, what's not working, what have you tried, how's it impacting you. Most importantly, figure out where you want to go with your health and why you're not able to bridge that gap. And if I feel I can help you and all the things that you need to be doing, I can recommend to you, I'll let you know. And if I don't know, I'll tell you that too. But my goal is for you to leave this call with a step-by-step -step game plan to learn how to bridge that gap and get your life back quickly. If I feel I can help you, I'll tell you what that will look like to work together. However, there's no obligation to do any further work and there's no charge for the call whatsoever. It's just really a one-on-one -on -one time for you and my team member or myself to get true value out of what's not working with your health and what are you missing in order for you to make that next step. If that makes a lot of sense to you, then go ahead and go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com, all one word, adrenal fatigue workshop.com forward slash apply now spacing is limited 
and it's a first come first first served basis and you have to be willing to to make that next step to get your health back or at least be serious about it if we feel we can help each other just go to www.adrenalfatigueworkshop.com forward slash apply and i look forward to giving you value and getting you your health back